0: Welcome to Dialogue, Debate and Disputation, When Rabbis and Romans Argued. The goal that I'd like to set out to do is try to take, um, to analyze some of the statements brought down by our sages in the Talmud and Talmudic literature, where back in the times that we've been speaking about past couple of weeks, where the Romans were in control of the Jews and they had a lot of uh, interactions with each other, a lot of them uh, were negative as we've seen. But there's this influx of debate uh, between these two very different groups that are suddenly in contact with each other. We have the Jews, of course, who are obsessed with learning, obsessed with knowledge, intellectually oriented people. They meet the Romans, who likewise are obsessed with learning and with knowledge and with ideas. And there's an interesting confluence here. There's just a, a marriage between... Uh, these two cultures, and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, of course, but one way that we see again and again in the Talmud is ancient disputes. They would have debates, they would have theological clashes, because the Romans, of course, they were uh, amazing at assembling land and territory and people and subjects, but also in assembling pagans uh, and pagan deities, Uh, Because every country and every culture that that they conquered, they incorporated their deities, the local deities, into this growing, swelling collection of official Roman gods. So much so that Deocassius, the great Roman historian, he writes that the Romans had in excess more than 30,000 gods. And then they captured the Jews, and the Jews have an entirely different notion they talk about one god where all the power was coalesced in one entity, but not only that, you can't see this god, you have a hard time even organizing and delineating a cogent definition of this god. The definition is almost, we can't define it because it's from a entirely different realm. And this was fascinating and perplexing for the Romans, and they were, of course, very interested in it. Also, they liked to... Um, convince their subjects to kind of follow toe the line. And the Jews were very resistant to accepting uh, idolatry of any of any sort, of course. And this created um, fertile grounds for a lot of debate. Now it's interesting that we find in the Mishnah Peraky Avos, uh, Rabbi Elazar says a person should always study a lot of Torah and should know how to respond to a heretic. You have to know how to respond to a heretic. Part of the responsibility that we have in becoming Torah scholars is becoming adept in the knowledge to such a degree that we can refute the claims of the heretics. But what's interesting is, the Mishnah does not say that a person should respond to heretics. People should put a placard and say, I'll, I'll argue and debate with whomever. Rather, instead it says a person should know how to respond to heretics. What's interesting about this is that it's a demand upon us. We have to study a lot of Torah and to know to know how to respond to heretics, but not necessarily to respond to them. And what we see, a theme going through this discussion, is that the rabbis would try to avoid having these confrontations as best they could because they didn't want to. And only if they were forced to have this debate would they step up to the plate. So that's number one we see from this Mishnah. Number two, with this, this also shows us uh, the rabbi's attitude in what are they going to use as ammunition and evidence in their argument. Study a lot of Torah and know how to respond to the heretics. What this means is, how do you know how to respond to the heretics? By studying Torah. The way the Jews engaged in polemic in debate was to find evidence from the torah itself that bolstered their position they wouldn't say let's go study greek philosophy roman philosophy let's go examine what the pagans say and kind of refute them no that's not that's not the way we do we study from the torah and that builds our stance against heresy now the romans they had they made a big deal about this and for hundreds of years they would establish in various locations they would establish what's called in the Talmud a bay avidan it means a house of avidan what this was it was a centralized location where various religious groups and various strands within a religion would come and square off in uh, in academic debate. Uh, this is the time, remember, when the Sadducees, the Tzidobkim, and the Baitusim, these various strands of Jews that went off from the ideological mainstream of the Jewish people, they are very powerful uh, force amongst the Jewish people. And they would... Uh, have the backing of the Romans because what they did, they just believed in a written document. They didn't believe the whole Torah and the whole uh, uh, unity of Torah and they very much supported the Romans. So they were very much engaged and they, they would try to coach the rabbis into a debate and they would make the debate in this Avidan, in this house of debate. But what's interesting, it was never a balanced debate. Uh, argument it, it wasn't uh, a fair fight because the Romans would always favor their cohorts, the Sadducees and of course all the other pagans that came there and w- the rabbis would be at a severe disadvantage. so we find that the rabbis would only engage in debate if they were forced into it and indeed uh, you know my uh, just kind of the, the today like um, my thoughts on this issue there's a lot of interfaith dialogue and a lot of study of comparative religions, it seems clear to me from the research that the sages did not believe in comparative religion, religious study. And from what I found, I found a few different reasons why they didn't want to do it. First of all, it's dangerous. Because in some of these cases, you can't win. You know, let's let's say you lose the debate. Well, then they'll say, okay, you lost the debate. Go bow down to the idol. You lost the debate. Go back to the idol. That seems legitimate. What if you won the debate? Well, then you're threatening them, they'll, they'll kill you. So really, you cannot win. You're, you're put you know, between a rock and a hard place. And we know this has really existed throughout history. In 1236, this is a, more than a thousand years after most of the stories that we're going to talk about, the Ramban, famously in Spain, had the famous disputation. A four-day debate between him and uh, a Jew who became a Christian. And of course the Rabban trounced him, but why did he agree to participate? Only because the king asked him to do it. He was forced into it. And he was granted immunity to say whatever he wants to say, to bring whatever proof he wants to bring, and not be harmed as a result. But this really shows the prevailing attitude of these debates was, let's bring the rabbi in, we'll handcuff him behind his back, so he can't say whatever he wants to say. If he says what he wants to say, well then we'll put him down. So he can't win, and therefore the rabbis would avoid it. But also... Uh, The reason why the Jews, another reason why the Jews were hesitant and resistant to engage in these kinds of debates, is because most times, when you have debate with someone, it's really an exercise in futility. Because unless someone is willing to hear what you have to say, unless there's something you could potentially say that can convince them to change their mind, really, it's, 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 it's useless. It's senseless. You won't accomplish anything. A real debate, in fact, debates that the Talmud has. It's all about pursuit of truth. To say that the rabbis resisting debate is anti-intellectualism is not true. The reason why they resisted it is because the debate themselves were anti-intellectual. Open up the Talmud, every page you have another debate. The reason why they didn't want to engage in debate is because the debate was not one of exposing the truth, rather of obscuring the truth and not allowing the truth to come forth. I think another reason why they resisted uh, these kinds of debate is because it sometimes gives legitimacy uh, or at least equivalence to the other side. You know, I think the very term comparative religions, what does that mean? It means that I have my religion, you have your religion, and they're comparable enough to compare and contrast. We believe our religion is from God their religions is not from God. It's not. It's a hoax. That's what we believe. And therefore, for me to say that I'm going to compare my religion, I'm going to play Judaism with Christianity, with Islam, what I'm saying is that there's some room for comparison when indeed it's not. I don't believe someone who believes in the divinity of the Torah and in the notion of a chosen people can legitimately say the words comparative religion. How can you compare? They're They're apples and oranges. Additionally, there is a prohibition against the study of anti-Torah literature. Uh, today, a lot of people say, well, let us let us read the New Testament and we'll show how the obvious flaws, you know, just things don't make sense, things are uh, ridiculous, things are contradictory, and let's use that to try to boost Judaism. But the problem is there's a prohibition the Torah to not expose yourself to heretical pieces of knowledge. Thus, by someone doing that approach to say, oh, let's debate my religion versus your religion, or my ideals versus your ideals, or Torah ideals versus non-Torah ideals, that may indeed be a a transgression of, of Torah. And also, I think debate in such a setting, like we mentioned already earlier, it's not... Uh, one that was done with pursuit of truth, and it's very difficult. Everyone's trying to trick the other person into making a mistake, and it's more uh, malicious than earnest. And therefore, for these reasons, and maybe there's other reasons as well, they would not try to do this uh, on their own. Now, the Talmud tells us a very surprising episode. The Romans they sent two students to go to the yeshiva and to study all of Torah and to come back with a report about what the Torah contains. And the reason why they did that was because they wanted to have a total list of uh, a catalog of all of Torah and we'll see if we like it and see if we agree with it or not. So these two students, this is from the Talmud in, in Babak Kama, these two students, they go and they learn Hebrew, and they learn all of Torah. They spend years and years in the yeshiva. And finally, when they're finished, they give their statement. And they say like this, We studied and examined and ruminated the entire Torah. And it's truth. It's true. The whole thing's true. Besides for one thing, Why? You said There's one law that we don't like, we don't agree with, we, we, we have a problem with. What's that? That the halacha is if an ox of a Jew gores the ox of a non-Jew or a Canaanite, a Canaanite, a non-citizen, he is not liable. Whereas if this Canaanite, the Canaanite, his ox gores the Jewish ox, he is liable. This is the one thing we don't agree with. Everything else is fine, but you should know that we're not going to tell the authorities because the Torah is so beautiful, so wondrous, it's so magnificent, we're not going to inform upon you because you may suffer as a result. This is an interesting example of, A, the Romans being very interested in finding out what the Torah contains, but also with the dedication that the rabbis had to fidelity of Torah, Think about it. Assuming we're the convention of rabbis, and we have these two Roman students who are here to study the whole Torah. Why? Because we're essentially the Jewish nation, is on trial. Because they want to see what the Torah contains, and to see if there's anything problematic about it. So, you would imagine that we, it's essentially the life of the Jewish communities everywhere are in the balance. Because the Romans were very vicious and brutal when they didn't like a certain population. They would slaughter and rape and pillage men, women, and children. Don't you imagine someone would say, hey, this is a case of pituach nefesh. This is a case of a, we're endangering the life here. Maybe we should cut this problematic verse, sentence teaching out. And one of the commentators on this on this Talmud, the famous Maharshal is Yom Shol he points out a very interesting thing. He says that there's actually just akin to the three cardinal laws that we have to even give up our lives for, i.e. Uh, murder, adultery, and idolatry, there's a third, there's a fourth, and that is truth of Torah. For someone to say something which is untrue in Torah, i.e. to change and pervert Torah, even if your life's at stake, you can't do it. We have to stay true to Torah. So this is an interesting wrinkle in, the, in this discussion. The rabbis are debating about Torah, but they cannot whitewash, so to speak, any of the problematic parts of Torah, they, because that's even if your life is on the line, you cannot do that. So the rabbis were always being called to come represent the Jews in debate. And the, I collected a few Talmuds here to show how they resisted doing it. So it's interesting. There's a whole list of excuses that the Talmud gives in various different places. For example, uh, under Hadrian, he had his Hadrianic persecutions where he took, he started assassinating rabbis all the time. And there was one great rabbi, Rabbi Elazar ben Purata, who they captured, and they started interrogating him for all his sins. And one of the sins was how come you didn't go to Bey How come you didn't represent the Jewish people in the plenum, in the debate, in the Bey So he tells them, well, I'm old and I'm worried that there's so many people here coming to hear these debates, maybe I'll get trampled and I'll get killed. And it's not clear if this was an excuse or it was a real, it was a real concern. So they say to him, wait a minute, it never happened. The of Vidan's been around for centuries, maybe. And it's never happened that someone got trampled. And a miracle happened that, that that very same day, where they were discussing this, they get the news, oh, there was an old man who got trampled in the Be'a Vidan. What What's interesting is, is that it seems that this wasn't an excuse, this wasn't a real reason. And we find this theme again and again. The Gemara tells us, that's Gemara voters, the Gemara Vodazah, the Gemara and Shabbos tells us that they uh, they said to Rava, Rava is hundreds of years after this story. Why well, come you don't go to the Beit? So he says, I do want to go, but in the road from my house to the Bayavidan, Avidan, there's a tree, and it's hard for me to navigate it. So they say to him, you know what we'll do? We'll just cut. We'll move, remove the tree. So he says, yes, but there's going to be a hole now. Then there's going to be like a. There's gonna be a hole in the ground where the tree once stood, and a little about to get there. Clearly, this is not a real argument, this is an excuse. They're avoiding it. The Talmud does say that one of the some of the rabbis would indeed go. And Rav Yosef said, "It says, Ah, I'm not scared of going, I'll go. And he went there and they tried to kill him. So indeed you see, like this was not a place where it was safe for Jews to venture. Lastly, the great Rabbi Yehoshua, who we mentioned last time, he was one of the leaders in Yavne. He was a diplomat and a statesman. And Caesar, he asked him, how come you don't go to the Ba'avidah? He says, well, I'm old. So it seems like there's a lot of excuses uh, why they resisted to go. And I think this, this is a, a interesting insight for me. Today, we like to expose ourselves to a lot of things, and we don't realize the potential corrosive nature of what we're going to learn and how it's going to impact our life and our world. We see the great rabbis who were resistant to go and to engage in these debates. Now, granted, there may be an actual element of real danger for a rabbi 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire to go to a house of debate and debate with all the heathens and heretics. They, they, they may actually get assassinated while doing that. So it's really interesting. The Talmud, indeed, just to round this out, has an interesting question. What's the halacha if a bay Vidan, one of these houses of of debate and disputation, is on fire? And we know there are some books in there that have contained scripture, Torah scripture. Are you supposed to go and save it or not? Are you supposed to call the fire department to come and put out the fire when this place is going up in ashes because there are we know we cannot allow torah scripture to be burned so talmud's not sure well, one opinion says yes uh, the same rabbi says maybe no he wasn't sure it's an interesting question because torah literature but if it's in a roman environment maybe it doesn't have the same uh, the same laws but either way that's kind of the introduction but we find at this time, a fascinating confrontation of different cultures. The Romans were enamored and perplexed by the notion of one invisible God. Uh, In turn, we are confronted for the first time, maybe not quite the first time, but the second time, uh, with intellectual pagans that we've never met before. And this provides really for a wealth of debate between the two. Uh, Of course, like we mentioned, the Jews were forced into it frequently, but Which is why, by the way, many of the debates are recorded with Caesar himself. Because if the Caesar comes and calls you to have a debate in front of him or with him, you have no other option. You have to go. And I think this is going to give us a little bit more color and background for the great scholars that we have discussed previously in Great Jewish Personalities because almost all of them engaged in debate with some Roman official uh, over the course of their their, uh, tenure. So I want to give some examples here. Here, this is talking about uh, the Romans in general. It might have been the Senate or the procurators, the philosophim, so we always the Roman philosophers. They asked the Jewish elders in Rome. It's not clear who these Jewish elders are, but we know that the Jewish elders, the sages would frequently travel to Rome to represent their constituents. And they asked him, listen to this question. Very interesting question, they asked him. It's like this. Remember, they're, they're idolaters. And they meet these Jews who abhor idolatry. And they say to them, if your God, if the Jewish God, doesn't like idolatry, how come he doesn't destroy it? You say God has all the power. Well, there's idols. Idols are a counter force, so to speak. Uh, they're the opposition. Why would God not just straight up vanquish the idols? He could surely do that. So they said to him, they responded, well, well, I think it's, it's a good question. Like, why does God allow this to exist in the world? And their response is also equally very intriguing. They say to them, say to them if the people would be worshipping matters or entities that have no use, then the might would immediately eradicate it. But, what, but who, what are they worshiping to? The sun, the moon, the stars. We need all those things. So let them people worship them and they'll have to suffer. The, the, the fools who worship it, well, they'll have to deal with the consequences of their behavior. And they give a few examples. It says, Well, let's say someone steals a bushel of wheat and he wants to plant it. This is stolen wheat. So the mighty should well suspend the laws of agriculture and say, you plant the wheat, it's not going to work. No, there, there, there are systems of the world, and there's rules of nature, and the rules of nature allow uh, for even sin can follow the rules of nature. Another example they give, what if, uh, if there's uh, infidelity, there's adultery. So how could you allow for, uh, for conception to take place? It's evil. How does God allow evil? And once again, they say, another, they say, listen, this is that's the, the Almighty created an arena for us to have the opportunity to sin. This is an interesting, this is a fascinating debate. On one end, they're saying, hey, there's evil in the world. We see people sinning all the time. Why does God allow it? Says the rabbis, no, that's precisely what the Almighty wants. If it was something that the world does not need, if the world does not need an opportunity for sin, well, there wouldn't indeed be an opportunity for sin. But the Almighty the desires that we should be challenged. We should have tension. It shouldn't be easy. We should face conflict. We should face conflict. And therefore, he deliberately allows all the potential conflicts to be there and the choice is ours and we'll have to live with the consequences. Fascinating debate between the rabbis and the Romans. Now, the great Roman Gamliel, he's faced with a, another interesting question. And we'll go through one after another to just see a sampling of of some of the great debates and also to learn about some of the people that we've talked about as well and how they navigated very skillfully these really delicate situations. They're kind of walking on eggshells because they know you say something wrong, your head's gone the next, a second later. And there's other stories in the Talmud. We'll see some of them hopefully tonight where a Siege doesn't like what someone says and they're dead right away. Like, that, that's it. You know, that's the, there's a kind of a hair-trigger difference between life and death. So the Roman procurator asks Robin Gamliel. Again, this is an interesting debate because it's, again, trying to understand how God responds to idolatry. And he quotes a verse that says that God will punish those who commit idolatry. He says that if God's upset with the idols, let him destroy the idols. Why destroy the idolaters? That's his question. That's quite a Roman's question. If the Almighty, why is the mighty angry at the idolaters? Go after the idol itself. So he says, let me give you an example. Imagine you have a king, and the king has a son, and the son has a dog, a pet. And he decides to name the pet after his dad, the king. So he's calling his dog with the same name as his father. And he starts to blaspheme against his dog, but it's the same name as his father. What's it? Who is the, who is the king going to be upset about? The dog? Or the sun? Well, of course, the sun. Your, your idols is no, is no greater than a dog. So, they, so he says to them, if it's a dog, then let it be destroyed. So he says, well, no, we can't have it destroyed because uh, it's, not need, it's needed in the world, like the previous answer. And then something very interesting uh, occurs. Uh, the Roman says, there were instances where a tornado went through the city, and destroyed every house, besides for the house of idolatry. So obviously, the idol has some substance, got some power. It's a good question. It works. So, what does really respond? Think it. You, you, you have to respond right right now. It's a good question. See, just like this. Suppose a king gets angry at his people, so he wants to start punishing them. Is he going to go to the graveyard and punish the dead people? No. He'll punish only the live people. So he says, people that do idolatry—it's it, dead; it, it doesn't matter; it doesn't register, so to speak, in the spiritual realm. Therefore, when they might want to punish people, he only punishes the live people, not the dead people. Fascinating answers, like on on the spot. There's um another great debate between Rabbi Akiva and Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus was a Roman senator and also the governor of Judea, and he was responsible for raising the temple. So about 50 years after the temple destroyed, Hadrian decides to actually stamp out the Jewish connection to Israel by actually hiring, well, with slave labor, actually lowering the height of the mountain to kind of just twist the knife into the hearts of the Jewish people. And the person in charge of that was this guy, Turnus Rufus, known in Hebrew, Qu- uh, Quintus Tienius Rufus in, in Roman or Latin. And he has a whole series of debates, very fascinating ones, with Rabbi Akiva, who was, of course, the Jewish leader at the time. And he tells them like this. He says, God, he obviously hates poor people. Because if he loved poor people, he would... Not make him poor. It's a good question. <laughs> Another good question, not, not bad questions. And Robert responds to them, to him, by saying, no. The reason why God created poor people was for the rich people to give them opportunity to do mitzvahs. And what, what he's really asking here is that what the real debate here is. What is the role, so to speak, of God versus the role of man? Turnus Rufus is saying, well, God should make everything perfect. Rabbi Kiva is saying, no, it's, this is a dramatic Jewish idea, or maybe the fundamental Jewish idea. The world is not perfect by design. God made it imperfect so that we can have an opportunity to make it perfect. Indeed, God can make such abundance as no poor people. No poor people exist. But the Almighty specifically wants poor people to exist, wants it to be a dynamic world where therefore there's an opportunity for greatness on one hand, but of course we could be cruel and wicked and and miserly and, and not help the poor. That's by design. Additionally, uh, Turnus Rufus asked Rabbi Kiva the following question. And this is another example of how the questions are phrased in a way that are very, you know, they're very malicious. He's trying to get him. It's a like kind of a gotcha question. He asks him, like this: Whose actions are better, the actions of God or the actions of flesh and blood? So you and I would answer, well, of course, the actions of God. What does Robert heave answer? The actions of flesh and blood. This, of course. Uh, this was not the expected answer that Ternus Rufus was expecting. So he says to him, wait a minute. You say that man's actions are greater than God's. What well, could, God, could man create heaven and earth? Of course not. So Robert says, well, that, that's not a fair question because the heaven and earth, that's a different realm. It's not our realm. We're not part of that world. Ask me a question about this world. So then he asked him what well, his real question was. How can you have a, how can you have a circumcision? And Rebecca tells him, I knew this was your question. And that's why I preempted your question with my answer. Because what was his question? Turnus Rufus was expecting Rebecca to say that God's handiwork is greater than our handiwork. That's what you would assume. If I told you, which question? What would Rebecca say to the following question? Whose actions are greater, God's or arrows? Every one of us would say, Unanimously, that God's handiwork is greater than ours. But Rabbi he even knew what his follow-up question was going to be, and his follow-up question is going to be, "Okay, well, God created man uncircumcised. Well, if that's better than our actions, then why are we going to tamper and tinker and alter what God did? We're mutilating God's actions and saying that our ideas is better." We knew that was his question, and therefore he said, "No, man's action, man's handiwork is rare. Of course, man's handiwork doesn't compare to God's, of course." But he knew where he was going, and he avoided it very skillfully. And and he says, "That's why I, I gave you uh, that answer." He gives him another example. He says, um, "Look at the um, dough. I have a dough here." On one hand, on the other hand, I have a bunch of bushels of wheat. Which one of them is better? Of course, you'd rather have the dough because the dough is almost edible. And certainly, if you have bread, that's also almost edible. Well, which one does God give you? Which one is the product of man? God gives us from the from the ground. There's wheat growing, and we turn that into something which is edible. And what this is essentially saying, what Rambam is arguing, is that God and man are partners. We don't believe in just saying, and and really the whole world testifies that that God and us work in tandem. If someone just says, I'm going to start chewing grass, you can't do that. You have to invest, you have to be a partner with God in creating a beautiful world, and that's the idea. And that's why God, on purpose, creates us in a situation that we're not perfect, that we need to be circumcised, and indeed the world around us. He gives us Food And it's not ready for eating because he wants us to be a partner in making the food uh, edible. I want to highlight one remarkable standout of the rabbis. There's many examples. I just selected a few of them because otherwise we'd be able till to tomorrow. But Rabbi Yoshua, like we mentioned earlier, he was a statesman and a diplomat, but he was also the debate king. Whenever the rabbis were forced into debate, they would always nominate him but also he was like the advisor to the Caesar on Jewish affairs. So there's tens of Gemaras, of teachings, where Rabbi Yehoshua was guiding, or at least informing the Romans and the Caesars about the Jewish way of life. And he would ask them every question about Jewish way of life, which they were fascinated with. He would go to Rabbi Yehoshua and say, well, what's the the deal with this? But uh, there's another interesting debate here that happened in front of the Caesar. They brought in a heretic, and they debated in a strange fashion. This, they used to have this esoteric method of debate where it was nonverbal. And the rules were, this is, I think, mind-blowing, but they used to have these debates, you weren't allowed to say anything. You only had to gesture. And you had to gesture in an argument in response to the other gesture. So you had to be so good at sign language to understand what the person's saying and how you're responding to it, because afterwards they would force you to say, okay, he said this, he said, you did this, you did that, what were you saying? So this guy gestures to him and he turns his face away. He's sending a message. What he's actually trying to say is that God turned his face away from the Jewish people. And Rabbi Yeshua responds with his hand, no, his hand is still guiding us. That was the debate. So after afterwards, the Caesar takes Rabbi Yeshua and says, well, what was the argument about so he says, well, he said to me, God's turning his face away from you, from the Jewish people. And I responded to him by saying, no, that God's hand is always guiding us. Fine, that was the debate, but it was over. Rabbi Shua obviously understood what was going on. And they pull in the apricorist, the, the, the heretic, and they say to him, well, what were you gesturing to Rabbi Yeshua? He says, well, I was gesturing that God turned his face away from you. Well, what did he respond? I don't know what he responded. You don't know what he responded? Right away they took him out and they executed him. Uh, this really shows, first of all, what kind of perilous endeavor it was. Like the, if you lost the debate, you were immediately executed. Think about that. And not only that, it's to debate without talking. Uh, just think about what kind of titans here are, are engaging in this form of debate and how delicate you have to be and why maybe perhaps you would want to avoid it if possible. But also an interesting question. like, And I think this is pertinent to our holiday. We just celebrated the holiday of Hanukkah. Indeed, there is a good argument that this heretic presented. Sometimes it looks like God turned his face away from us. It seems like that. We have Hanukkah. We're taken over by the Greeks. And they start mistreating us in horrific ways. And we're, we it's a good question to ask. Where's God? That's a very good question. And the the true answer, the answer that we see through the Hanukkah story and really throughout Jewish history is that even in the darkest of times there's the light, there's the light of Hanukkah, the light of God still illuminating, God still guiding us with his hand. Now I mentioned that Rabbi Yeshua would frequently uh, be the one that the Romans went to for their questions. There's a very slightly humorous story between Rabbi Yeshua and the daughter of the caesar and the talmud gives a little introduction to the story by saying that the torah is compared over the course of jewish literature to various different drinks torah is like water torah is like wine torah is like milk and the talmud is trying to understand why is the torah compared to these to these beverages so they said a lesson that just like these beverages are very delicate right milk could spoil the wine could ferment. You have to guard it in, in a particular kind of vessel. So, too, Torah has to be guarded in a particular kind of vessel. If we want to be a vessel for Torah, we have to make ourselves the right kind of vessel that is humble, like Moses and like the great scholars, and therefore uh, we, will, uh, we will be a good haven for Torah. That's the introduction. But the story goes is that Rabbi Yeshua was in Rome, probably on some sort of diplomatic mission, and Caesar's daughter comes over to Rabbi Yeshua and she tells him, if, if you are so special, you're a great Torah scholar and your Torah is so beautiful, why would the Torah be put in such an ugly vessel? He's essentially saying to him, "Is why are you so ugly? Great uh, pickup line. So, Obviously, as always, thinking very quickly on his feet, he said to her, well, how come your father's wine is in such an ugly barrel? He points the barrel. It's an old, wooden, disgusting barrel. It should be in a gold or a silver barrel. So she says, well, oh, that's a good idea. So she instructs all the servants, pour right away, pour that wine, take it out of this horrible, ugly, wooden, uh, rotten, spoiling barrel and put it into a gold barrel. Next time, the Caesar wants to the drink. They give him the wine. This is disgusting. What happened? Well, your daughter told us to move it into the gold vessel. He brings in the daughter. Well, why'd you do that? Well, Rabbi Yeshua told me to do that. Well, he brings in Rabbi Yeshua. why did you do that? So he tells her the whole story. And And he was saying to her, well, I was just responding to her argument. Her argument was the Torah should be in beautiful vessels. I said, well, if so, the wine should be in beautiful vessels as well. And just like the Torah, the wine will spoil in a beautiful vessel, so too the Torah will spoil in a beautiful vessel as well. So the Caesar says to him, but wait a minute, there's many Torah scholars that are very beautiful. So according to you, the Torah should spoil. So be Yeshua responds, well, if they were ugly, they'd be even greater Torah scholars. Because to be a great Torah scholar, you have to have humility. Someone who's so beautiful has a hard time having humility, and therefore, almost automatically, there has to be a reduction in their Torah. Now, the story is very humorous, I think, but I think the lesson is a very, very powerful lesson. In order for someone to make themselves into an appropriate vessel. For Torah, they have to not have arrogance, because when you are haughty, when you're prideful, you're discounting God from your world. You're saying, look at me, and when you don't have God in your world, God's Torah is also not able uh, to be welcome in your world. Another story here is uh, the Emperor Hadrian wants to see God. Well, this is again a theme. The Romans cannot fathom the notion that God's invisible. So he goes over to Rabbi Yeshua ben Khanina and he says to him, I want to see God. And he says, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I, I, can't res- I can't refuse anyone of your requests, but it's not possible. Why? And he quotes the verse, Kilo the verse that God tells Moshe in Exodus. Moshe says, show me, your, show me your face. He says, well, it's not possible. Even Moshe, it's not possible. He says, so Caesar so, responds, I insist, I want to see him. I insist. What are you going to do now, right? Uh, remember, this is Hadrian, a very, very quick trigger finger. So, he takes him outside, and he stands, uh, facing uh, back to the sun, and he says, "Look at me." And he tries to look at him, and he can't because he's blinded by the sun. In one version of the story, well, I don't know if he, it's not clear if he says, "Look at him" or "Look at the sun itself." He tells him, "Go look at the sun." midday in the summer. Look at the sun. So he says, I can't. So he says, don't you hear what what you're saying? One of God's creations you can't look at. You want to look at God himself? Of course, if it's not possible for someone to even look at God's earthly creation, how could you possibly have any sort of sensory touchpoint with God himself? Now Rabbi Gamliel Uh, was brought in before the Caesar and they asked him a question like this. Resurrection. Dead people are coming back to life. So he says to him, wait a minute, but aren't dead people after they're dead? You dig up the body and it's just a bunch of dust. How is it possible for dust to come, to inanimate matter to suddenly become animate? So the daughter of Caesar hears this this hears this this uh, dispute or this debate. So she hears the debate. And she says, let me answer him. Don't answer him. And she says like this. He says, you have two contractors in the city. One of them builds houses, mansions, out of concrete. And one builds it out of water. Which one of them is a more impressive feat? So obviously the Caesar responds. The one who builds a house out of water, nothing more impressive than that. Well, says the daughter and obviously from the Talmud, this is Talmud approved, God creates life in our existence out of water, out of the primordial biological fluid. If God can create life out of that, God's already a carpenter or already a contractor that builds out of water. Certainly, he could build out of earth, which is much more substantial. The Talmud also brings Rabbi Meir and Cleopatra, very fascinating disagreement that they had, also about resurrection. She asks Rabbi Mayer. she says to him, listen, I know, I know that dead people, I, I believe that dead people are coming back to life. But my question is, are they going to come back with clothing or naked? And that was her question. Okay, how do you answer that question? He tells her, I'm going to make a comparison to wheat. Just like wheat just as when you put wheat in the ground, you put a kernel without the chaff. You put it in the ground, and when it grows out of the ground, it is covered with layers and layers of chaff. So you put it in naked and it comes out clothed. Well, when you bury someone, you put them in clothed. So if when you put something that's naked, it comes out clothed, certainly when you put something that's clothed, it will most certainly come out clothed as well. That's his response Cleopatra, which is really interesting, these Gemaras because they really teach us a lot, not only about, about the cleverness and wittiness and quick thinking of the rabbis, but also great lessons about resurrection itself. When Rabbi Gamaliel and Caesar's daughter tell him that God can create out of water, certainly he can create out of earth, what he's telling them is that in this world we're created out of water. In Olam Abba, when we are resurrected, we're created out of earth. Well, who else do we know that was created out of earth? Adam. What he's telling us is that the paradigm of life here and life in Olam Abba, a resurrection, well, they're entirely different. In the future, when we are resurrected, God willing, with the tzaddikim, we're going to be resurrected as Adam was, Soul dominant and body just there. We won't have a Yetzera, and therefore the soul will be the predominant factor in our consciousness. So it's not just a witty response. It also is a transformative insight. We think of resurrection of the dead as marrying body and soul the way it was prior. The truth is a lot more sophisticated than that. The truth is is that we're created out of earth like Adam where the body is secondary to the soul. And what does Rabbi Meir tell Cleopatra? What he's doing there, he's comparing death and burial to planting of a seed. What he's essentially telling her is that when someone dies, they are a seed that will emerge by resurrection, and a seed always is contains the DNA the building blocks of whatever fruit is going to emerge. You want to emerge in Olam as a soul. you got to make sure that you have the kernel of that here. And thus when we look at death, to us it's the end. The truth is, is that it's the planting and the burial is the planting of our next existence. A few more here. Uh, Rabbi Shua ben Hananiah, for example he was asked the following question by Caesar. Why does the food of Shabbos have a special t- smell to it? He says, well, there's a, a special spice that we have and we put it into the chalant, we put it into the food and it gives it that special aroma, wafting aroma. So he says, well, I'm, I'm the Caesar. I can well, Give me the spice. He says, well, the spice only works if someone's observing Shabbos. If someone's not observing Shabbos, it doesn't work. Once again, a very clever response, but a tremendously deep insight. And that is is that when someone is observing Shabbos, they're unlocking another realm of existence that is inaccessible for someone that doesn't observe Shabbos. If someone is not observant of Shabbos, there is some element of joy that is not tapped into, uh, uh, of life, of perhaps we can say, Me'en olma a realm of Olam a facet of Olam that is only accessible by this magic spice that we call Shabbos. You have the spice, you have the Shabbos. You don't have the spice, you don't have the Shabbos. One more quick, very funny one. And with this we will conclude. Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, one of the Tanaim, he was a student of Rabbi Akiva, And he, uh, a Roman noblewoman, asked him another vexing question. Well, how long did it take God to create the world? So we know, six days, plus one day of Shabbos. That's what we learn in Genesis, and indeed that's what he told her. Six days to create the world. Oh, six days, okay. Well, what's he doing since then? Uh Aha, I gotcha. How are you going to answer that question? It's been a long time since the world was created. What is the Almighty doing since So, he tells her, the humanity is making matches. The daughter of this person, to this person, the money of this person, to this person, the field of this person, to this person, he's making connections. That's what God's doing. Well, she says, well, is that so impressive? I could do that as well. And she says, you know what? I'm going to do an experiment, a case study. I have a thousand male servants. I have a thousand female servants. Do you think God's so special? I'll make matches. So she makes a long line, or she lines up all her slaves, men on one side, women on the other side, you with you, you with you, you with you, and she sets them all up and says, we'll see what happens. And the Talmud tells us that the next day, they came back, and she lines them up again, and she sees that everyone's wounded. And the Talmud tells us, one of the one of the slaves was missing an eyeball, one of them had a broken leg, and a third his head was squashed in. And she says, what's happened? Well, we got into a fight and one push came to shove and this is how I ended up with this mortal wound. And if that's what the men had, who knows what the women had, right? <laughs> and she comes back to Rabbi Yossi and says, there is no God like your God. Indeed, what she's saying is that she's almost admitting that God in, that there's some sort of supernatural reality that is coordinating and orchestrating all of life. This is a sampling, there's many, many more. Uh, next week, God willing, we're going to be discussing not debates of rabbis and Romans, but of polemics with heretics, where there were Jews who went awry, and they would frequently try to stump the rabbis, and there's a, a very different kind of sense uh, to those discussions and those very fascinating questions that they asked. But I think this uh, discussion really gives us a, a window, insight into what life was like during that time. You're faced with this enemy that on one hand is is, is really someone you have a lot in common with. They're, obs- they're obsessed with Torah, with rabbis. They they, they build stadiums for Debates, can you imagine? Uh, NRG Stadium, they have comparative religion debates. That's what they want. Everyone's there. People knock each other over and people are dying because they're trampling, like ha- what happens in Argentina during soccer matches. That's what's happening because people are fascinated with religion. It's in a, a, a totally different time. And they want the rabbis to be there. They want them on the stage. And the rabbis are, are, are looked at as rock stars because they are titans of intellect and titans of theology an ideology. And the rabbis know you go up there and you're between the you know the the cross what do they call it the crosshairs. You're between the crosshairs. You're in danger because you could literally get your life taken away from you. And they ask you these complicated questions that are kind of gotcha questions. And you have to navigate it very very delicately to avoid dying or to avoid creating a tremendous catastrophe. And we see many examples of the great rabbis and how they We're successful in doing that. And also, we learn and are inspired and continue to be inspired by these great men and their responses and their lessons that they taught.